Our Old Testament scripture reading is also from the book of Isaiah. Please turn to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35, we're going to read this chapter together. You'll find this on page 719 of the Pew Bible. Isaiah 35. Let us give attention now to the word of the living God. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen. This is not the Word of man, this is the Word of God. And may He be pleased to write its truth on each of our hearts this morning. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 11. We're going to read verses 2 to 6. You'll find that on page 983 of the Bible, Matthew chapter 11, going to read from the second verse. Let us again give attention to the Word of God. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, 
he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he be pleased to add his blessing to its reading and now its preaching as well. I've entitled this sermon, The Doubting Believer. And of course, there's a sense in which that's, that's an oxymoron, right? That, that's a contradiction in terms. A doubting believer. One whose life is defined by faith is by definition a believer. And that's a common title for the Christian throughout the Bible. Those who believe in Christ. Acts 5 verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. 1 Timothy 4.12, be an example to the believers in word and in conduct. 2 Corinthians 6.15, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? So, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are a believer, a believer in Christ, justified by faith, sanctified by faith. We live by faith, not by sight. And yet, is it not true that there are times in our lives as believers where our faith, our belief, is seriously attacked? Since faith is that primary grace that is exercised savingly to be justified and then perseveringly to be sanctified, it is faith that the devil is most in the business of undermining. We might say that the devil is a master in the art of doubt, and he finds a willing ally in our own weakness, how easy it is for us to lift our eyes off of Christ and onto ourselves or the world with its enticements and disappointments, thus providing fertile ground for the weeds of doubt to grow. This morning, I'd like us, therefore, to think about this paradox of a doubting believer using the example of John the Baptist that we've just read here in Matthew chapter 
11. Now, this is a new section in Matthew's uh, gospel. Matthew, up to this point, has been recounting Jesus' public ministry in the villages of Galilee and sending his disciples out to do the same, to do evangelism, uh, preaching and teaching the gospel, and validating this gospel by miracles which illustrate that gospel. But when we get to Matthew 11 and also chapter 12, Matthew begins to tell us the response of the people to Jesus' work, uh, his ministry, his person, uh, and so on. And he's going to talk about the the response of the crowds that follow him, uh, the villages he was visiting, the Pharisees and all those enemies that followed him as well to see what he was saying, and of course, we ourselves. But it's striking that Matthew begins this list of responses to Jesus uh, by talking about someone we might think um, we might think this person's response could be predicted, but we're kind of surprised when we read it. It's John the Baptist, John who had been the herald uh, of the king, and yet even this giant of the faith, the king's herald no less, was apparently having doubts. At this point in John's life, John the Baptist is a doubting believer. And I believe that he stands as an example to us of this all-too-common experience that may afflict the life of even the most mature believer, the struggle with doubts. So I want us to consider this theme this morning under two headings. First, we will consider the believer and his doubts. And then secondly, we want to think about Jesus and your doubts. The believer and his doubts and Jesus and your doubts. Let's think then about the believer and his doubts. And we're going to use John, of course, as our case study this morning. First, let's consider under this heading John's predicament. John's predicament. Have a look again at the second verse. We read, John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. We're told back in Matthew 4.12 that John had been arrested, which was the very reason, actually, uh, that Jesus had come to Galilee to preach in the first place. Now, what's John doing in prison? Well, Matthew 14 verse 3 tells us that Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Uh, So John the Baptist had borne testimony against sin in high places, and he had fallen afoul of the wicked establishment of the Herods. Uh, John had dared rebuke Herod the Tetrarch from his pulpit for an incestuous marriage to his half-brother's wife. And so he was bound and put in a dungeon. Uh, The Jewish uh, historian Josephus tells us that he was imprisoned in the lonely Machaerus fortress in the desert east of the Dead Sea, and its its ruins are still visible uh, today. So here's this 
courageous, faithful servant suffering for the truth, and he is seemingly completely at the mercy of Herod. Herod, who was so wicked, and yet at the same time so weak. Because on the one hand, we read in Matthew 14, 5, although Herod wanted to put John to death, he feared the multitude because they counted John a prophet. But then on the other hand, Mark tells us in his gospel, Mark 6, 19, therefore Herodias held it against John and wanted to kill him, but she couldn't, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he heard him gladly. So here's this King Herod, uh, pictured in the Gospels as a wicked puppet ruler, but he's fickle, and he's paranoid, and he's conflicted. He hates John, He wants John dead, but he has this superstitious fear of John and his fan club among the Jews, and he's even willing to listen to his preaching gladly. And of course, we know that Herodias one day is going to get her way, and she's going to get John the Baptist's head on a platter at the behest of her daughter Salome. Now, why am I telling you all this? It's, it's to show John's truly desperate predicament. Here is a faithful Christian in the grip of wicked men. He once freely roamed the desert preaching Christ. Now he's imprisoned in the desert, facing almost certain death. The future for John is deeply uncertain. And only Herod's prevarication is staving off the seeming inevitable. He is in the depths, we might say, like the psalmist that we just sang from. He's in prison. John could also sing the words of Psalm 31, "'Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. I am forgotten like a dead man, out of mind, for I hear the slander of many.'" Fear is on every side while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. That's John's predicament. But secondly, under this heading, and not surprising perhaps, we have to consider John's doubts. John's predicament and now John's doubts, because it's clear that the turmoil of John's external circumstances are a reflection of the turmoil that was going on within his soul. We read in verse 2 that when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? These words should knock you flat. These are are the last words we should expect to hear uh, from John. In fact, some of the older commentators said, well, I couldn't possibly be John. must have been his disciples that were having doubts. The, The Greek text does not allow for that interpretation. If these words don't shock you, maybe you need to recall just who this man was. In verse 10, which we're going to think about tonight, 
It says, this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And verse 13, all the prophets and law prophesied till John, and if you're willing to receive it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Or take John chapter 1, verse 29 and following. John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I have come baptizing with water, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So here's John, and he's the herald of the King, no less. John's very mission in life is to proclaim Christ's identity. We might say that John the Baptist stands as the embodiment of the Old Testament prophets whose voice together declared Jesus of Nazareth is the one who was to come. But here's John in prison. And he's saying, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? What on earth has happened to John? Well, we read in verse 2 that John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. It, it seems that what John heard about Jesus' ministry perhaps had not quite lived up to his own expectations. As we'll see, Jesus' reply in verses 4 to 6 suggests that John had perhaps imagined Jesus would have a more dramatic messianic ministry, eradicating evil and injustice in Israel. Because after all, it was John that had declared that Jesus was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And yet, here is he, the messenger of the Messiah on death row. And in this mixture of disappointed expectations and the painful fact of being in prison at the hands of this king and his wife, Herod and Herodias, surely we see that John is just like Elijah, his Old Testament forerunner. You remember how Elijah, after a dramatic public ministry, had fled from a king and his wife, Ahab and Jezebel, also into this eastern desert, and there had also fallen into a depression, struggling with deep questions about his own ministry. And why doesn't God intervene to prevent so many bowing the knee to Baal? Exactly the same with the second Elijah, John the Baptist. So we see here John's predicament and John's doubts. What about your doubts? What about your doubts? Do you ever feel like you're in prison spiritually? Not under a sentence of death like John, but certainly dealing with intense disappointment in life, intense stress, uncertainty about the future. Paul describes the feeling this way in 2 Corinthians 1.8 about himself. He says, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us while we were in Asia. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. That's Paul speaking. Doubts 
and depression are not uncommon in the life of the Christian. If you're a doubting believer this morning, you're actually in very good company. Of John, Jesus later says in verse 10, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So if one such as John the Baptist can have severe doubts, it's little wonder if you or I may have this condition from time to time. It doesn't mean to say it's not a serious condition. It is. But it does mean that it's not a strange condition. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. The Puritan Thomas Brooks writes, Though Satan can never rob a believer of his crown, yet such is his malice and envy that he will leave no stone unturned, no means unattempted to rob them of their comfort and peace, to cause them to spend their days in sorrow and mourning, in sighing and complaining, in doubting and questioning. Now, you may not have the same specific kinds of doubts that John had about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have some other hang-up, some little unresolved theological question, perhaps, that robs you of your peace. But whatever it is, it can easily come to dominate you. And there are many common reasons uh, for having doubts. It may be the result of disappointed expectations of the Christian life. Uh, it might be the suggestions of the devil, as Thomas Brooks suggests. Very often it's due to an inadequate theological foundation or theological struggles you're having. It could come from an indulgence of personal sin. It could be focusing too much on your spiritual feelings instead of the spiritual truth of God's Word. Or it could simply be a willful, stubborn unbelief in the face of God's clear promises. We just said that the turmoil of John's external circumstances are a reflection of the turmoil he felt in his soul. And I think we could go further and say that the turmoil of John's external circumstances no doubt contributed to the turmoil he felt in his soul. Why does the believer doubt? It often has to do with external circumstances, just really difficult providences that God in His fatherly wisdom brings into your life. Some crisis comes into your life. It doesn't have to be as serious as John's, but, but like John's, you lose some of your liberty, perhaps. You're oppressed by others. You feel cut off from the Lord. You find yourself in a far-off land. You suddenly face some uncertainty in your future. And the external uncertainty shakes your internal certainty. And you begin to wonder. And a question arises in your mind about truths that perhaps you thought you held with rock-solid conviction, maybe even preached to others like John the Baptist. And your questioning makes you depressed and anxious and cast down. What has happened to you? You've become a doubting believer. Great gifts may be accompanied by weak constitutions. 
And those used most by the Lord are often those targeted most by the devil. In the historic pitched battles, maybe you, you watch these in the films and uh, you know, there go the armies charging at each other across that field. Well, you know who the archers will always target. The archers will always target the captains. You bring down the captains and you scatter the army. You create confusion. And Satan often targets Christian leaders, some of the finest of which have struggled with dark seasons of doubt and depression. Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Thomas Boston, Martin Lloyd-Jones, give you a long, long list. You read their diaries. And they went through times like John. So that's the believer and his doubts. But we want to think, secondly, this morning about Jesus and your doubts. What's the solution? The problem has been stated, and now we learn how the problem is resolved. And there's two things I want you to observe under this heading. First, what you should do with your doubts. And secondly, what Jesus does with your doubts. What you should do with your doubts and what Jesus does with your doubts. First of all then, what should you do with your doubts? And again, I think John the Baptist provides us with a very good case study. You need to do three things. First and most important, appeal directly to Jesus appeal directly to Jesus. We read that John sent word by his disciples, and sent word to Jesus, of course. Uh, he sent word by his disciples to Jesus. Are you struggling with doubt this morning? You must send word to Jesus. Do it without delay, because the temptation is for you to try to muddle through your doubts by yourself first, and then come to Jesus. But you have to realize that inside the heart of the doubting believer, there is confusion. Don't try to untangle or disentangle the confusion yourself. Rather, go to Jesus in your confusion so that He may disentangle it for you. Notice that John's doubt centered on the person and work of Jesus, but he didn't allow that fact to prevent him from sending word to Jesus. Maybe you're having doubts about God and His existence even, and the devil reasons with you, why bother praying to the one you're not even sure exists? Don't buy the lie. Psalm 36, 9, in His light we see light. You, you bring your doubts, you see, into the light of His presence, not the darkness of your own depression, your own condition, much less the confusion of the Dr. Phil's and the Oprah Winfrey's out there who will try to fix your problem for you. Appealing directly to Jesus is in itself an act of faith which undermines the very doubts you are struggling with. And I realize you may feel nothing when you go to prayer. Your, your faith may seem smaller than a mustard seed. It doesn't matter. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. Thomas Manton advises his readers, quote, "...dependence upon an unseen God..." 
resolute adherence to a withdrawn God is the flower and glory of faith. When we are left to a naked faith and a naked word or promise of God, yet then to adhere to Him and wait upon Him for what is contradicted by our sense, this is to believe in hope against hope. So that must be the first thing. Address Jesus. Go directly to Jesus and don't delay. The second thing is then to acknowledge your doubts to Jesus. Acknowledge your doubts to Jesus. We read, John sent word by his disciples and said to him, that is to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Think about how humbling, maybe even humiliating, it was for John to publicly express these doubts and confess them to his Lord. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we wait for someone else? It's the contradiction of all that he had so powerfully taught. It's more than just an expression of a theological difficulty. It is as much a confession of his unbelief. Now, let me ask you, does the doubting believer ever have a good reason for doubting God? And I hope your instant answer is, of course not. <laughs> of course not. There is never a good reason for doubting God, because doubt is a tragic expression of the believer's frailty, of indwelling sin, of the weakness of faith. When you doubt God, get on your knees and pray to God, and spread the matter before Him in all honesty, like John did, and wait upon Him for an answer. When you think about it, John the Baptist would have had to wait some time for his messengers to go to Jesus, find Him first of all, and then come back again with an answer. And so you must acknowledge your doubt to God, and say with the psalmist, truly, my soul silently waits for God. From Him comes my salvation. Appeal directly to Jesus. Acknowledge your doubts to Jesus. And thirdly, ask for help from others. Ask for help from others. John may be in prison, both figuratively and literally, but John still has close Christian friends. And apparently his imprisonment didn't preclude visits uh, from his disciples. Uh, John tells these close friends his struggle. That's really important. He doesn't keep it to himself. He has these close Christian friends, and he tells them the struggle he's having so that they in turn can relay that struggle to Christ on his behalf, you see? And the doubting believer needs close Christian friends with whom he or she can share their burden, who they know will then intercede with Christ on their behalf. Are you struggling this morning spiritually? Who are your Christian friends that are praying for you? Who do you know this morning you know this week they are going to be carrying your burdens before the throne of grace. 
Or maybe you're in the position of a Christian friend, and you've been asked to pray for someone. You know someone who's wrestling with doubts or some other great concern. Then you need to heed the command of Paul when he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What you should do with your doubts, appeal directly to Jesus, acknowledge your doubts to Jesus, ask for help from others. But even more important than what you do is what Jesus does. And so, what does Jesus do with your doubts? We come to verses 4 to 6, and we read, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In these verses, we see that Jesus also does three things. The first thing He does is Jesus directs you to Scripture. You come to Jesus in your doubt, He's going to send you back to your Bible. Jesus directs you to Scripture. Verse 5 here is an allusion to two texts in the book of Isaiah. And the first is one we read earlier. Let me just remind us of one of those verses. This is Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who are fearful-hearted. That's John, right? Say to those who are fearful-hearted. Be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. That's the quotation that he sends John to. The healing miracles were proof positive that the kingdom had come, that God had come to save His people. And remember that these miracles of Jesus speak of healing the blindness of sin, the paralysis of sin, the barrenness of sin. The kingdom is a spiritual kingdom liberating souls, not Jewish patriots from Roman occupation. He's saying, John, go back and read your Bible. This is what's happening. I am the Messiah. John's doubts lay in disappointed expectations of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus is gently telling His weak servant to bring His own expectations in line with the book. Now that's what we have to do, you see, to be brought back to the rock of Scripture when we doubt and to conform our troubled souls to the promises of God, to let the certainties of the Word put to rest the uncertainties of our hearts. That's the first Scripture that Jesus points him to. There is another Scripture that Jesus is pointing to here, also from Isaiah, this time Isaiah 61, and the first few verses. And listen to how that reads. Isaiah 61.1, "...the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor." There's the, the reference. There's the quote, okay? that he's pointing John to. But let me finish the quote from Isaiah, which John, of course, knew what the rest of it said. Isaiah continues, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You see how tenderly Jesus deals with this doubting believer. The preaching of the gospel to the poor in spirit should certainly dispel John's specific doubts about the identity of Christ. But the terms in which the prophet states the gospel tidings is also perfectly, perfectly fitted to John's predicament. And Jesus suits this comforting Scripture to this doubting believer perfectly. In the words of Isaiah, is not John the Baptist brokenhearted, bound in prison, mourning in Zion, with a spirit of heaviness? So Jesus directs this doubting believer to texts full of comfort and encouragement and soothes his soul with them. Brothers and sisters, has that not been your experience in your hour of doubt? God, you open your Bible, and there's this perfect verse. It was written for you. You come to church, and there's a sermon. It's like, it's amazing. The Lord suits His Word to your every need. John Bunyan, in his great allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, tells the story of Christian's encounter with giant despair, who imprisons, you remember, Christian and hopeful in Doubting Castle. There's two doubting believers in the story for weeks on end. And you remember how he beats them mercilessly and even tempts them with suicide. And finally, one day, Christian makes a remarkable discovery in the prison cell. Let me read from the book. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in this passionate speech. What a fool I am, he said, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well be walking at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try it. Then Christian pulled the key of promise out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt as he turned the key gave back, and the door flew open with ease, and Christian and Hopeful both came out. The promises of Scripture are, are in your bosom, they're in your heart, and they are there to be pleaded. How much time do we waste in doubts and despairs because we don't go to the Scriptures? That's what Jesus does with your doubts. He directs you to Scripture. There's something else He does. He also directs you to evidences that will calm your fears. He directs you to evidences that will calm your fears. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus goes beyond the Scriptures and calls you to look at His providences in light of them. That is to say, to compare his works with his word. He says, go and tell John the things you hear and see. 
Tell them the things you hear and see. As with John, Jesus comes to you and directs you not just to open your Bible, but to open your eyes and open your ears. What are the things that you hear and see? Have you no tokens of God's grace upon your life? Can you not think of countless blessings from His faithful hand all through your life? And does that not confirm the word of promise in the book? Let me quote another Thomas, Thomas Boston this time. He says, Our Lord gives John's disciples answer by referring them to His works compared with the Word. Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61. Divine power can cast such a beam of light over the works and Word of God as will stare even the strongest unbelief out of countenance and make that raging lust fall down, unable to create more trouble. You see, searching for evidences must always come in second place to searching the Word of God, but you must interpret the providences of God by the Word of God. Some of us maybe need to go home this afternoon, get a piece of paper out and a pencil, and start counting your blessings. Write them down, list them out, and turn it into a prayer list. And remember, open your eyes, open your ears, as God says to John, and say with the psalmist the words we just sang, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Jesus directs you to Scripture. And Jesus directs you to evidences. And finally, and very briefly, Jesus directs you to stand firm. Jesus directs you to stand firm. And we see that in that last verse, verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus' words to this doubting believer end with a beatitude. And fittingly, it calls the doubting believer back to a lively faith. The blessed man is the one who has true faith in the Christ of Scripture, not the Christ of his own disappointed expectations. And here is, I think, not so much a rebuke as a renewed command to be resolute in your faith, to stand firm, to, to act like men and be strong as Paul has it. And by this statement, you see, John, sorry, Jesus directs each of you to answer John's question for yourself. Think about this. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, Our life in this world here and now, and the whole meaning of death, and indeed our life throughout eternity, depends entirely and solely upon our answer to this question. What was John's question? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? You see, John the Baptist's question is the ultimate question. It's the question all of us must ask. Do you believe that Jesus is the coming one? Or are you looking for somebody else? Jesus makes clear that true 
blessedness, true happiness can only be found by answering John's question in the affirmative, by faith. Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. Or better, blessed is he who is not made to stumble on account of me. It's that Greek word scandalizo. Are you scandalized by Jesus? Do you stumble over who He is and what He's done? Do you stumble perhaps over what He has done in your life? If so, then you should resolve this morning to take yourself to Him. Go directly to Jesus. Study His Word. Study His works just as He counseled John. This is sound advice not only for the doubting believer, but also the doubting unbeliever who may be here this morning. But if you are trusting in Him today and have not stumbled, but are looking to Him with a weak but resolute faith, then Jesus says to you this morning, you are blessed. You are blessed. You are in a truly happy condition, though you don't maybe feel particularly happy this morning. And so may each of us find grace to stand firm in our seasons of doubt and discouragement and come to Jesus and find our doubting transformed into a blessing. Amen. Let us unite our hearts again in prayer. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, that your word is so honest to share with us the struggles of the great men and women of old who we look to as heroes of the faith and yet who had feet of clay like ours. We thank you, O Lord God, for this testimony of John the Baptist, that when we struggle with doubts, sometimes very severe doubts and depression, that we can still come directly to you that we can spread our doubts and our problems before you and await your answer. Thank you also for the Christian friends that you put in our lives who walk the same path with us, O Lord God, and who will bring our needs to Christ as well. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you so fit your word to our life's circumstances that you are watching over us every day, that there are fresh blessings and fresh mercies every morning. May we not be strangers to your word, O Lord, but may we be mighty in the word so that when these seasons come, we can swiftly dispel these doubts by reminding ourselves of your promises and reminding ourselves of what we see and hear to open our eyes, to open our ears to all that you've done for us already and for the promises that you have given to carry us into an uncertain future. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is in such a state, we ask that you would bring comfort to them by pointing them back to your word. And we ask, O oh Lord, if there be any who do not yet know you, who have not answered this question, this ultimate question, that you would give them the saving grace of your spirit, that you would open their eyes and ears, that they would be able to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We ask it all in his name. Amen.